God is good all the time. Kind of throw you off a little bit, but we just saying that we'll see his goodness, so we might as well start that way. Um, I want to thank you all for your prayers, and I uh, want to thank Mike and Charlie uh, for filling in the last couple of weeks. Uh, some of y'all may or may not know, and I'm not afraid to or ashamed to share it, uh, but uh, the Hurchin household became the col- Coliseum of COVID for a couple of weeks, and that was fun. Um, and uh, one week it was just we had two active cases, and we didn't want to take a chance by getting anybody sick, and then uh, Abby got sick, and then uh, I thought, <clears throat> well, I'm the last one standing, yeah, immune, and uh, yeah, and uh, pride before the fall, right? <laughs> That's the way it usually works, but um, we're feeling better. Uh, obviously, you may, be, may or not be able to tell my voice is not fully back. I will apologize now if I have to clear my throat, um, but I am feeling uh, much better. Um, I was had enough energy to get out to shovel the snow, which is always a blessing, as you all are aware of. But uh, again, thank you, Mike and Charlie, for filling in. And because it's been a couple weeks, you may or may not remember, we actually started this ser- this year off with a series called Invest. And uh, we were we began by looking at investing in our relationship with God and finding the motivation through the scriptures on why we should invest in our motiva- in our relationship with God because it's going to take time. It's going to take sacrifices. It's going to call us to stop doing things and start doing other things. Uh, and we spend time just looking at how much God invested in us through his son, Jesus Christ, as we just sang about, he has justified us. He has declared us righteous before him simply by our faith in the work of Christ, that he completed and finished it. And so a couple weeks ago, and you may need to go look at the church podcast, we began our time looking at investing in reading and studying the Bible. And, and uh, I'll just give you a heads up, if you were not here that Sunday, that don't let it freak you out when you see that it was like an hour sermon. Um, but we just we walked through a passage of Scripture on, on how to learn some techniques and, and some things and getting into the Word of God, not just to read it, but to get into the depths of what God is wanting to speak to us through his word. I mean, this is breathed out from the very mouth of God, from the very heavens, the throne room, for our well-being, for our righteousness, to equip us for what God wants us to do. This morning, we are going to be shifting our focus. And here's our, our focus for this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, if you want to make your way there in the scriptures. Our focus this morning is invest in discipleship, Invest in evangelism and invest in discipleship. And I know I said discipleship twice, but we're going to see how this plays out uh, as we walk through this. Uh, if you were to look up the word discipleship and try to find it in Scripture, you're not going to find it there because the word itself, discipleship, is never actually used in Scripture. But what it means is one who is being discipled. And so throughout all of our lives, there have been people that God because he loves us, has placed in our life that have been discipling us. Some intentionally, and some that we weren't even aware of, but maybe God is going to bring those to mind and memory this morning of individuals that he has placed in our life that have made an impact in our life for the eternal kingdom of God, that have have helped us in our relationship with him. The simplest definition of the word disciple is to be a student and one who studies under a teacher. And so the word is frequently used for what we define as discipleship. And so that word disciple literally means to walk behind someone or to follow them. 
And if you look into the New Testament, into the Gospels, into the book of Acts, what you're going to find is if you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, what the Bible first defines you as is a disciple. That you are to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You walk behind his teaching. He is your shepherd, and therefore he is leading, leading you. And so, but at times, since many of us have grown up in a church or become familiar with that word disciple, we most likely originally jumped to the 12 disciples, those who Jesus commissioned to be the apostles. In Scripture, we have the 12, but they're not the only ones in Scripture that are titled disciples. If you read through the Gospels, John the Baptist had his own disciples. matter of fact, two of his disciples ended up following Jesus and became two of the 12 disciples. And at times, an individual would simply be titled a disciple because they were following Jesus throughout his ministry. On top of that, not everyone who's titled a disciple in Scripture is actually a believer. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, as Jesus was teaching on he being the bread of life and that people would have to feed off of him, there are many people who heard this teaching and began to grumble and complain. And we're told in John, chapter 6, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so what I want us to do this morning as we walk through Matthew chapter 28, is I want us to see that all of us actually have two types of disciples in our life. And in those two types of disciples, one of those is going to be one that we are discipling in in a form of evangelism. But we are all to be invested in discipleship, invested in evangelism, and invested in discipleship. Now, Matthew 28, many of us know that as the Great Commission. Matter of fact, if you're looking at it in your scriptures, you probably see a subtitle above that. You need to know Jesus never titled it that. That was inserted there just to kind of let us know what is going on. The word commission is defined as an instruction, a command, or a duty. And so that's why we title it the Great Commission, because it holds all of this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He is giving them instructions through a command, which is going to define their duty that they are going to have to take on as he didn't ready to ascend into the heavens. And so let's read through our passage, and then we'll walk through it and see how this plays out. Beginning in verse 18 of Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day. It is so good to be in your presence. It is so good to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It is so good to worship your goodness and to now open up your scriptures, your word, and hear your voice as our Father speaking to us directly. So, Father, move me out of the way. I do not have the power nor the wisdom to say what needs to be said here this morning, but I praise you, God, and we praise you all that you know everything about us. There's not a thing in our life that is secret from you. There's not a thing that is hidden. You know what we come, what we bring before you that we're struggling with and what we're praising you about. And so we come before you and we submit to your will. We submit 
to your authority. We submit to your power and to your word and to your spirit that you would have your way with us. That you would transform us and mold us more in your likeness. That you would awaken us to what you're calling us to do, what you're calling us to be about in this life. Father, give my voice the strength it needs. Don't let me become a distraction by any way. And forgive us if we failed you as we've worshipped you and if it hasn't been in spirit and truth. So let your kingdom come and will be done. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to have to do this every now and then, but that's all right. All right, so first off, let's look at this. The word them. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, If you jump back to verse 16, you see that this is speaking to the 11 disciples. This is giving us a point of reference. At this point in time, Judas Iscariot is no longer with Jesus and disciples. He has hung himself because he has betrayed the Christ. But Jesus comes to them, the 11 disciples, and declares to them in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I just want us to put ourselves in the disciples' feet at this moment. You're now standing before the risen Christ. You're now standing before the Messiah and the Savior of the world, and you now fully understand what Jesus was trying to teach you the last three years about who he was and his identity. And as he stands before you in all of his glory, in this new spiritual body that he has, there would have been no doubt in our mind when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We would not question that whatsoever. You don't find Peter or anybody else asking questions They fully understand, okay, when he says he has all authority, he has it. He just rose from the grave. We've been with him for the last 40 days. He definitely has all authority. And in that authority, he issues this instructional command that disciples, you and me, Christians, we have a duty to fulfill in this life. The word go there in verse 19 in the Greek, carries the meaning, as you are going. What it is telling us in Jesus' authority is he is not delivering a suggestion. He's delivering an expectation upon us. That if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow my teachings, if I am actually your teacher, and you're going to walk behind me, then there's an expectation that you are going to be about movement. You're going to be about action. You are going to be going out into this world with a purpose under my command and the instructions. And what I want to do this morning, because I know many of us are probably familiar with this passage. We probably have heard it numerous times growing up. We probably know the words. We could probably maybe even quote it word for word, whatever version of Scripture you're reading. I want to present this passage as a sequence or an order of events, and I want to back it up with Scripture. Not because it's something like, oh, maybe that, maybe that could be. But to back it up in Scripture that Jesus has actually given us a sequence of things that are to happen. You make disciples, you baptize them, and then you teach them. Meaning disciples are to be made. Then baptisms are to happen, and finally further teachings or discipleship is to take place. The first thing Jesus says in verse 19 is, Make disciples of all nations. And we can read over that, and we've probably heard this numerous times, but we have to keep in mind, up to this point in history, Jesus was the Messiah to the Jewish people. 
He was the Savior that was spoken of through the Jewish writings, what we call the Old Testament. And yet Jesus is saying that this salvation, this calling to make disciples is now for all nations. And this is going to be a hurdle that the apostles are going to have to get over as we, if you read into the book of Acts. And it's going to be led by Peter and Paul in getting over this hurdle that Gentiles are now grafted in to the covenantal family. And we should all praise God about that. Because we have been grafted into God's covenantal family. We've been grafted in to his promises. And again, Jesus speaking to the 11 disciples, to so the question that comes to my mind, as I began thinking about this passage, how would the 11 disciples have defined what it is to make a disciple? I mean, they would have been with Jesus for the last three years, and that is exactly what he has been doing. He's been discipling. They were, in fact, the guinea pigs of disciple-making. And so let's think about this for a second. <clears throat> In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we're told that Jesus arrives on the Jordan River. And John the Baptist points out, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He baptized Jesus. Jesus goes in the wilderness to be tempted. Then he comes back, and John says it again. Behold the Lamb of God. In that moment, two of John's disciples decide to follow Jesus. They want to figure out who this person is. They want to know, because Jesus asks them this question. It's the first question in the Gospel of John. What do you want? They want to know where are you staying so we can come stay with you. We can talk with you. We can learn from you. We can get to know you. Now, we can figure out through the other Gospels who these two individuals were. One was John the Apostle. He never gives his name within the Gospel of John. He's one of the first followers of Jesus. The other one is Andrew, who's the brother of Peter. So they spend the night with Jesus. We're told in the Gospel of John, Andrew then goes, finds his brother Peter, and says, look, I think we found the Messiah. You should come and meet him. Well, time begins to tra transpose, and we go into Matthew chapter 4. And Matthew chapter 4 is probably the most familiar passage we have when it comes to calling the disciples. We find Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, or in the Gospel of John, he calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. And he's walking by, and he sees two fishermen, brothers. Anybody remember their names? I just gave them to you. Peter and Andrew. All right, thank you, Sam. Sam's with me. Oh, was that you? I thought I heard from Sam. Sorry. Good credit later, Danny. Anyway, okay, so Peter and Andrew, he sees them. What does he say to them? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we've probably heard that before, but here's the implication of that. Discipleship or being a disciple is what? Following the teacher, walking behind them. Jesus is giving the invitation in Matthew 4 for these men to be his disciple. They've encountered him previously. They know there's something different about him. But they've yet to figure out what that is. We're later told in Matthew 4, Jesus goes on a little further down the shoreline, and he sees two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, right? And he calls them with the same invitation, come and follow me. They immediately leave their father and the servants, and they follow Jesus. We jump ahead into Matthew, or back, we jump back into John when Philip encounters Jesus in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives the same invitation. 
follow me. Philip is so excited, he goes finds his racist friend Nathaniel and says, I think we found the Messiah. You should come and meet him. It's Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? He says, well, come and see. And Jesus gives the invitation to Nathaniel at that moment, come and see greater things than this. We jump to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is walking by a tax booth where a man by Matthew, also known as Levi, is working. A Jewish individual, one who has been outcast from society, and Jesus gives the same invitation. Follow me. And we're told that Matthew leaves his possessions, he leaves all his workplaces, and he follows Jesus. Here's the point. Jesus' invitation to follow him, which the disciples would have understood, because we only know about those seven. His invitation to them for, for them to follow him was not based upon them being a believer at that moment. It was not based upon them understanding who Jesus was at that moment. They were simply seeking something that was great. And they saw that Jesus had the authority of a rabbi or teacher upon them. And so when we come back to Matthew 28, I believe that the original disciples, when they heard Jesus say to make disciples, to engage in discipleship, they would have gone back to where they started and understood, look, when we first became disciples, we weren't in fact believers. We were simply individuals that were being invited into the life of Jesus Christ because we had enough interest and curiosity in who this person was. And so they started following him. They started learning from him. They started seeing greater things. And I believe this is what make disciples implies. That we are to invite people into our life so they can see greater things out of our life. And that greater thing is Jesus Christ. And some, some of us right now, I mean, when I say invite, we don't even need to invite. Because by God's sovereignty, he's already placed people in your life that are not a believer. But they see something about you and they're drawn to it. They're attracted to it. They may not know what it, what, what it is but they see something greater in you that they don't see in someone else. See, the disciples were originally, originally seekers. They weren't believers. So one aspect of discipleship, which Jesus says to make disciples, is to invest into the people that God has placed in our life who aren't believers. But we're going to invite them in to follow what we've learned about Jesus because we've been reading his word. We've been going to church. We've been studying his word and we're going to engage with them in conversations about Christ, what he means to us. And what we're going to allow them to do is we're going to allow them to observe our life and how we're living for Jesus with the goal of them finding Christ. So we're going to make disciples, and discipleship isn't always pointed at believers. It's pointed at people who are seeking, pointed at people who are at least interested now, at the disciples' invitation, they didn't understand who Jesus was, and they didn't understand what Jesus was going to do. And, and we'll back this by Scripture. When Jesus told the disciples, this is immediately after Peter's confession of Christ, told the disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem to die. 
at the hand of the religious leaders. Does anybody know what Peter said to Jesus? Never, Lord. That'll never happen. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan, right? Peter didn't understand what Jesus was speaking of, that he didn't come to be this king on earth. He came to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He came to die for the sins of the world. But Peter didn't understand at that moment, which means he couldn't have had his had placed faith in who Christ fully was in that moment. When Jesus told his disciples, we've got to go to Lazarus' tomb because he's sleeping, the disciples rebuked Jesus because they knew the religious leaders, where Lazarus was, was close to Jerusalem, and they knew the religious leaders were out to kill him. And they didn't understand that's why Jesus came. He came to die. When the disciples... We're in the upper room with Jesus Christ. And he told them that he's about to be handed over to men. He is going to be crucified. They all attested, we will die with you and for you, Jesus Christ. Why? Because they didn't understand the sacrifice of Christ. They were still being discipled. They were still seeking. And so how this applies right now is right now... It, we don't, God has placed people in our life which we have already engaged in discipleship with. And the Bible calls this bearing fruit. Now, one aspect of discipleship, because I think we always think of discipleship in church. You know, you do that in small group, you do that in Bible study, you do that in one-on-one. -on -one, but one aspect of discipleship is evangelism. We think evangelism has to be preaching and proclaiming in public. And there's different aspects of evangelism. And most of us are already engaged in this form of disciple evangelism. Here's how. <clears throat> Who has kids? Who has grandkids? Who has some kids around? As a parent, I did not wait for Ethan or Abby to become a believer before I started sharing with them about the love of God. I did not wait for them to make a confession of faith and to be baptized before I started teaching them about the Lord's Supper and the meaning of baptism and what Easter was all about and what Christmas was all about. Can any other parent relate to that? Most of us sat with our children when they were young and we had a children's Bible with pictures and we read stories to them and we asked them questions when we got home from church about what did you learn. You know what we were doing? We were engaged in disciple making with an unbeliever. It just happened to be our child or our grandchild. And so when we take this idea of making disciples... It's looking for those people that God has already placed in our life that are not a believer, but are seeking. For some reason, they've been drawn to our life because God has drawn them to your life so you can bear fruit of discipleship and fruit of evangelism. We're not preaching at them. We're simply engaging with them in conversation. We're inviting them into our lives and allowing them to see how we live our life so they can have the opportunity to begin to follow Jesus. Robert Gallaty writes, The first and second century church was not built on revivals, mass crusades, or gospel pitches. 
It was built on the backbone of personal relationships. The reason discipleship leads to evangelism is that you share out of the overflow of what you're learning. When you're saturated with the Word through memory, reading, and journaling daily, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, you can't help but share that with those around you. And so what Scripture says, that if we're a believer, if we call ourselves a Christian, we're also a disciple. And what Scripture says is because all people do is we are bearing fruit for something. Now, as disciples, as Christians, as believers, we are to be bearing fruit of our salvation. Of course, we all have this battle. Sometimes we bear fruit of our sinful nature. But either way, we're bearing fruit. We're either pointing people to Christ or pointing people away from Christ. We're either pointing people to salvation or pointing people to sin. So that's how we're disciple-making. So the application about this part is start praying. Start praying for God to open your eyes about the individuals that he's already placed in your life that you are to be bearing fruit of your salvation. Maybe you have to ask, okay, who are the people that like me? We have a small list for some of you. I don't know. Who are the people that are around me a lot? Do I know? Are they saved? Are they written in the eternal book of life? And then start praying, Lord, help me to engage in conversation with them. Help me to bear fruit of my salvation. These are the people that God is calling you to invest in discipleship. The second thing is invest in evangelism. Excuse me, sorry. Verse 19, it says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We turn to the book of Acts and we see the Great Commission begin to manifest through the first believers. Now the difference between disciple-making or making disciples and evangelism, we can see in Acts. Here, here's the thing I think we figure about. It. Evangelism was never done in the church. Find any passage where you can say evangelism is done in the church. Evangelism, the difference between evangelism and discipleship is evangelism is done in the public square. It's done in the places where unbelievers have gathered. And so if we are to say that we are an evangelistic church at Harvest Hill, here's the question. Are we as God's people engaging in the public square are where people who are gathering who are not believers. That's what makes an evangelistic church an evangelistic church. We can preach, we can talk about sharing the gospel, but if we're not engaging the lost, we're not an evangelistic church. And the aspect of evangelism, it's done through proclamation. As a believer, God has given us his Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells us why the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, here's the thing. The Greek word for witnesses there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is the word in English we get for martyr. And so when Jesus is saying that you are to be my witnesses, you're going to be empowered by my spirit to be my witnesses, he's saying that you're going to share what you've experienced and what you encountered to the point that you could lose your life, but you could definitely and will lose your reputation with people of this world. But you've been empowered by the spirit to do it. Now, the word evangelist 
is only used three times in the New Testament, but each time it points to the act of proclaiming, communicating, or presenting the good news, which we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're given the Spirit to proclaim, communicate, and present the victory that we have found through Jesus Christ. In other words, it implies evangelism implies that we are all preachers in some way. And God has given you your pulpit, students. He's given you your pulpit in the classroom, in the sporting events, in the extracurricular activities. That is your pulpit. You are to preach and proclaim Jesus in that atmosphere. Adults, he's given us our pulpit at our workplace. We are to preach and proclaim. To preach, to be a preacher is this. We declare an event has happened. That's it. And what is that event? God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to live, heal, and forgive. Right? He paid our debt. He bought our pardon. And now we sing and praise him because he lives. We preach and declare this has happened. This is why every Sunday we will give an invitation of forgiveness can be found through Jesus Christ alone. Because we're preaching, the invitation is there, the gift is there. We're all called to proclaim the good news and be a witness of our following experience Jesus. But I think it's too many times as Christians, will anybody be willing to admit you've been fearful or even scared of sharing your faith? I have at times. Oh, it's just not the right time. You know, it'd be kind of awkward. You know, how do I fit this in the conversation? Here's what God says about fear. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. I think sometimes we think about evangelism, we get so bogged down because we've got to have a method or we've got to have steps. We need to get some training or, or some sort of approach in the conversation. We need to get some tracks in our hands. But when Jesus says that you are to be my witnesses, he was simply saying that we are to give testimony or share in what we have experienced with Jesus Christ in God's love. Other times we think, oh, well, evangelism is for missionaries. Evangelism is, you know, when we have a mission trip and we go on a mission field, that's where we're going to be evangelistic. Did you know right now you are sitting in the fourth unchurched, unsaved country in the entire world? So when you step out of your door and step into the world, when we leave this place, we are stepping on the mission field to be evangelistic. To preach and proclaim what we have experienced and declare that event is true. God tells us in Romans chapter 10, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? If you are born in this nation, if you've come to this nation, you need to understand that it is God who puts you here to engage this nation with the gospel. That is your purpose. You've begun a relationship with God, and now you are to be the instrument of righteousness, a minister of reconciliation, so that others can begin in a relationship with God. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to share why he was so invested in preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And this is what he said. He was invested in evangelism because he was under obligation, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. 
He was invested in evangelism because he was eager, Romans chapter 1, verse 15. And he was invested in evangelism because he was not ashamed, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul felt obligated because he understood who he was before Christ, and he understood who he was now in Christ, and he understood the unrepayable cost he had due to Christ because Christ had made that, that paid that cost on his behalf. Paul was eager, which means that he was willing, he was ready, he was excited to share the gospel because Paul understood the possibilities that someone would accept the gospel and their eternal life would be changed forever. Paul was obligated and not ashamed of the gospel because he understood Romans 1.16 that through the gospel and the proclaiming of the gospel, the power of God for salvation for everyone believes is revealed. So here's the question that God slapped me in the face with. If we're not invested in evangelism, then it's probably one of these three things is going on in our life. So which is it? If we're not invested in evangelism, is it because we have no sense of obligation to Christ? If we're not invested in evangelism, is it because we're not excited about what Christ did for us? If we're not invested in evangelism, is it because we're ashamed of who Christ is? See, if we aren't sharing our faith, and I don't mean through social media, I mean person to person, we have to take an honest look at ourselves and ask, why? Why? Since that is why God has empowered us with his spirit. Why aren't we engaging this world that is obviously hurting? It is obviously in darkness. It's being told lie after lie, and yet we have the absolute truth. Investing in evangelism about a method is not about an outline, it's not a procedure, it's not about having training. Evangelism is sharing what we have seen, what we have heard, and what we have experienced with Christ to another individual who has never seen, heard, or experienced Christ. And both discipleship with an unbeliever and evangelism, they're meant to be personal. Discipleship is obviously going to take a little bit longer. For Jesus, it took about three years for the guys he was pouring his life into to get it. Evangelism is more like a quick jab. I mean, see how Paul did it. He saw something, he went straight to the cross. That's evangelism. See something the world is dealing with, something the world understands, point to Jesus, point to the cross. That's what Paul did. The final thing is to invest in discipleship. And I know we already, that's already been one point. This is a different form of discipleship. Look in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This form of discipleship is between believer and believer. See, once we're saved, here's the thing, that's only the beginning. We're meant to grow in our relationship. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Greek word for work out means that this is to be a continuous and strenuous effort on our behalf. And this can be done by ourselves, but the implication back here in Matthew chapter 28 is of one believer teaching another believer. The context of Matthew 28 is disciples who have been with Christ 
are now to disciple those individuals who haven't been with Christ or haven't been with Christ as long so they can understand Christ's teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, led by the Spirit, condemned the Corinthian believers because they were not maturing in the faith but were still living as people of the world and were not ready for solid food. And what Paul was using as an illustration there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is when we come to Christ. So when we made that confession of faith, we accepted Christ, we maybe prayed a prayer, maybe walked down the aisle, you know, none of that saved you. It was your faith in Christ alone. When that happened, we became a baby spiritually. And what do we know about babies? Well, babies need milk, right? That's how they get fed. They can't have solid food. They don't have teeth. Well, Paul was writing to the Corinthian believers saying, look, why are you still babies? I want to give you solid food, which means I want to give you the deeper things of God, but because you're not growing in your faith, because you're not engaging in discipleship, I have to continue to give you food that infants require. So you need to grow up. He's telling them you need to engage in discipleship. You need to be discipled. Because Paul understood he himself had to be discipled. In Acts chapter 9, verse 19, when Paul came to Christ, when he understood who Christ was, when he made that confession of faith and was baptized, we're told he stayed with the disciples. He wasn't teaching. He was just with them. But discipleship isn't so we can grow and we can rattle off more Scripture verses or we can have all this head knowledge about the Bible. Here's what discipleship is for. You have been growing in the faith for this reason. So you can become a discipler. So you can engage in another believer's life who may not be as mature as you, who may not have been following Jesus as long as you, to help them grow in the faith. This is the model that Jesus did with his disciples and was calling his disciples to do with other disciples. And we see this also in the life of Paul. In the book of Acts chapter 16, Paul and Barnabas decide to split. They split because they have a little disagreement about John Mark. Paul doesn't want him to go anymore. Barnabas, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, we've got we to help him out and build him up. Paul's having nothing to do with it. So they split. Paul arrives in Lystra where he comes across a man by the name of, not a man, a boy, by the name of Timothy. Timothy was already a believer, but Paul saw something in Timothy that he wanted to invite Timothy into his life and to disciple him and to raise him up in the faith. And so Paul brings Timothy on his missionary trips to the point that eventually Paul sends Timothy to churches that are having issues and eventually plants Timothy in the city of Ephesus to be the pastor. See, to invest in discipleship with a believer is to pass on what we have learned from and about God to another generation. And we do this so other believers can pass it on to another generation. And what we've learned, they're passing on what they've learned to another generation. If you want to have an eternal impact, a lifelong impact, an impact that far exceeds the time you'll have on this earth, we need to be engaged in discipleship. We need to be pouring into the lives of people. And there's so many ways it can happen. Who are my married couples here? I'm one. Who's, who's been married here more than 20 years? More than 30 years? 40 years? We'll stop there because we, you know, then we'll start, we'll, we'll start trying to figure out how old you all are. <clears throat> 
So, so more than 40 years. Who's been here, married here less than 20 years? Do you think the people who've been married more than 40 years may have some wisdom to give us who've been married less than 20 years? Do you think they have some ways they could disciple us younger married couples on how to live a Christ-like marriage, how to raise our kids in a crazy world? Who's here that's engaged? I know we got at least one. No, you're not engaged anymore. <laughs> Nobody's here engaged anymore. Married less than a year. All right. <laughs> so some of us who've been married maybe 20 years or under, we could come along, individuals who've been married less than a year, meet over dinner, just talk about, hey, what's going on in your life? What's going on in your marriage? Learn from one another. Who has kids in college? Who has kids in preschool? <laughs> Who has grandkids? You want to raise your hand for that too? <laughs> Don't you think individuals who have kids maybe in high school and college have learned some things that maybe some parents who have kids in preschool or kindergarten or elementary school that we could share with one another, we could disciple each other with that? Who here is in college? Who here is in high school? I bet some of our college students have some things they could teach some of our high school students. Who's in middle school? Who's in high school? I bet our high school students have something our middle school students could learn from. You see, disciple, there's so many ways we could be discipling because we all have things that, that are similar, things that we can relate to. Some of us are, are business people. Some of us are, are people working in the, in the workforce where it is not a Christian environment. We have retired teachers here. We have teachers who have been teaching for 20 years. We have teachers who have been teaching for less than five years. To engage, to disciple, say, hey, this is, this is how I kept my sanity in Christ, teaching in the public school, and I want to pour this in your life. See, Jesus is telling us we need to be relational. We need to be sharing our life with one another. We need to be, this is the hard part, sharing our struggles. Sharing the battles we've gone through in our marriage with our kids. Because we, we think we, we're the only ones who do it, but or have gone through it. But I guarantee you there's people in here who have struggles. But you've seen the other side of it. And you can come along and you can disciple them. This is how God got me through. This is how I found the strength. And it doesn't have to be at church. It can be over dinner. I know we've got multiple hunters here. Maybe invite a younger hunter, just to go hang out with you in your little tree fort <laughs> and pour into their life in a Christian way. Yeah. Fathers to disciple our sons, mothers to disciple our daughters, to pass on what we've been learning in Christ so this next generation knows why we've trusted him for so long, why we have this hope, why we keep showing up here on Sunday morning. Engage. Point is invest in discipleship. Look for individuals you can disciple. Look for individuals that could disciple you. I have a confession to make. I asked Bernie to be my disciple to begin this year. We've yet to meet. <laughs> now part of that, I'm going to blame on COVID. 
But part of that is you, we've got to be intentional about this. Because some of y'all may not know, Bernie's been in the ministry. He's, he's been through it. And I'm, I still think I'm a young buck. And I know he's got wisdom he can pour into my life. This is about all of us just engaging with one another to learn from one another. That we can become stronger in the faith. And we don't do this through our own power. You notice how we do this? Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is promising us his presence. He's promising the power of his spirit. This is why in Acts 1-4 he told the disciples, don't go anywhere until the spirit comes. Because we can't disciple unbelievers. We can't engage in evangelism. We can't invest in discipleship with one another unless we're in the presence of Jesus. And it's the spirit moving and empowering us. Otherwise, it's just going to be worldly. Turning back to Matthew 28, 20. This is where we'll wrap it up. <clears throat> Jesus promised his presence. Did you catch that? I am with you always to the end of the age. Always. Not just when we gather here, when we're out there, always. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have that promise over your life. Because the only way you can have that promise over your life is if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And what that means is you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, those things you're ashamed of, those things you're not proud of, those things you know that God wouldn't want you to do and you know your parents weren't happy about. But you believe that Jesus Christ died for those and he rose again three days later to show his power over sin and death. Because the Bible says that the wages or the cost of sin is death. That means eternal separation from God. And if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, then his presence is not with you. And you're lost. But God has brought you here today because he loves you so much to change that. See, God created you for a relationship with him. Your sins are what's separating you or keeping you from that relationship. But Jesus Christ paid the price for those sins by dying on the cross and rising again. And if you believe in your heart that that is true, it doesn't mean you have to fully understand every aspect, every theological note of it, but you believe, okay, I believe that's true, and I, or I believe I need that. Then I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. I want God's presence in my life and over my life always. We're going to come to this time of invitation. I believe Nick and Bridget are going to lead us. If you need to come and accept Jesus Christ, I'll be down here. We can pray that. If you don't want to pray with me because you're like, man, he's been coughing and it sounds funny. Mike and Charlie, you want to come down here just in case. I don't want anything to hinder you in this moment. But maybe you need to come and kneel before the Father and say, Lord, okay, Lord, show me who you've placed in my life that I need to be investing in. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for calling us something greater than ourselves that we cannot do without you and your promise. Thank you for the spirit you've given us that enables us to do all things you've called us and declared us and commissioned us to do. You've not left us alone in this task. Thank you for this body of believers 
where we can strengthen one another in the faith. We can encourage one another in the faith. We can build each other up. We can challenge each other, and we can rebuke each other through your word. Lord, in this moment, I know you're doing a great, mighty work. Lord, in this moment, I know that you know the hearts of every individual here. You know who belongs to you and who doesn't. So I pray that your spirit would reveal that, that they cannot stay where they are, but they must come down and they have their eternal life changed because of your son, Jesus Christ. But Lord, let us be a church that is invested in one another, is invested in this world, and is invested in the lives of people who need to know you. I pray that you alone be glorified in this time of invitation and response. And praise on the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.